I'm Andrew Schwartz, and you're listening to The Truth of the Matter, a podcast by CSIS where we break down the top policy issues of the day and talk with the people that can help us best understand what's really going on. To get to the truth of the matter about the U.S.-Australia relationship and Prime Minister Anthony Albanese's visit to Washington last week, we have with us Dr. Charles Adele, who is our inaugural Australia chair here at CSIS. Charlie, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me on, Andrew. So, Charlie, what was President Biden's motivation for extending this invitation for a state visit to the Australian prime minister? And why was the visit so important? So let's take those in order. First of all, this is something, to be honest, of a redo. The president was supposed to be in Australia in May uh, for the Quad Leader Summit after the G7 in Hiroshima, Japan, and then separately just to be with the Aussies. President Biden was rumored to be going down there to actually give a speech to a joint session of parliament, then be up in Sydney, have that great backdrop of the Opera House behind them, and really to kind of cement how important this alliance is. American politics intervened, as it normally does. In the form of a government shutdown, I believe, or or a pending government shutdown. In the form of a pending government shutdown and potentially us defaulting on our debt. Right. So the president said he had to stay here for this. He went to the G7, but had to come home, had to make sure that he was negotiating. When he was with Prime Minister Albanese in Japan, he apologized. He said, look, this is not my preference, but this has to be my priority, to which Albanese graciously responded, got it. Apparently, at that point, the president said, but you should come over at the back half of this year and we'll do a big thing. So that became a state visit. That's how this came about. But the reason that this is important, I think, is one, it allowed them to actually progress further some of the things that they were working on bureaucratically. But this is a really important kind of temperature taking moment for the alliance. We have extraordinary ambitions in front of us with AUKUS, with potentially designating Australia as a domestic supplier for some of the IRA funding, and really for kind of working with us across the entire region. But some of those things are more advanced than others, and you take opportunities as they come. And so here we had a state visit. Could we move some of these forward at this moment? I'd also note that this is interesting timing because Prime Minister Albanese was here, and he's about to hop on a plane and head to Beijing at the end of the week. This is the first time an Australian prime minister has gone to Beijing since 2016. We also know this is right before, potentially, the president is going to meet with Xi Jinping out in San Francisco at APEC. So the timing is really fortuitous for them to have a range of discussion about a lot of different things. And we can also ask, you know, well, what's changed? We're still dealing with a pending government shutdown, pending um, debt crisis. So nothing's really changed on our end, although we postponed it for a while. We postponed it for a while. We're um, ever closer to an election year, which the Aussies are always watching on our end. But, you know, American politics still tends to do its thing at this point. Well, indeed, the Aussies are some of the most adroit consumers of U.S. politics and policy, having it be primarily in their interest, as are you. So I want to ask you, what were the main areas of focus that the Australian prime minister brought to his discussions with President Biden? What do the Aussies want and what can we give them? There was the public messaging, and then I think there was the more behind closed doors messaging. The public messaging, which is a really important part of this, is for a long time, multiple administrations, Democratic and Republican, labor and coalition in Australia, have really labored to make sure that this is not a relationship that is primarily or solely about defense and security. That's important. It's a necessary driver, but that is not really where they want this to be if it's to carry on and expand in the 21st century. 
consistently folks have talked about this, but they haven't put too much meat on the bones. So really what they wanted to do in this was drive this alliance into other areas in more substantive and concrete ways than they had done in the past. So they talked not only about defense, but about collaboration in the Pacific, about making sure that this was an innovation alliance, that's the terminology they put out, uh, that would drive job creation prosperity creation in both countries, where the two countries would partner on critical mineral supply chains, where we would partner between our private sectors on kind of the new and emerging technological fields such as AI and cloud computing. So the major message public facing of this was we're really synced in how we see much of the world and increasingly we're collaborating on an expanding number of fields. The behind the closed doors message was some anxiety from the Australians about where we are on defense, particularly on AUKUS, because some of the enabling legislation to actually move that forward has hit, if not a stall, a pause moment in Congress. And I think the Aussies came here wanting to really see if they could shake that loose and push it further forward. They didn't because we didn't have a speaker until halfway through the trip. But there are some small positive signs that this might be progressing to. Has the United States and Australian relationship weakened at all, particularly with an AUKUS? And was that part of the reason for this visit? No, I don't think it's weakened at all. In fact, I would say the opposite, that it's growing. But I think that the questions and the challenges are rising. It's funny, when we launched the Australia chair back in January of 2022, we had a great event. And in my 30 seconds or so that I could kind of brief the alliance and where it was going, I said, one of the things that I think is an important trend to watch for is we're doing more. We're doing more and more fields. And as we do that, the expectations are going to become higher. So some of the tensions and the frictions are inevitably going to grow because we're expecting more of each other. That's the backdrop to this because AUKUS is an enormously challenging, complex endeavor, and that also has bleed over effects into force posture and some other areas. And we are trying to progress it, but that means a lot of different things. It means a lot of things on the legislative front, on the resourcing front, on the skills front, and finding actually who's going to build these submarines, who's going to man them in Australia. This is a lot of throat clearing, Andrew, but I think the point is we're not weakening, but there are some heightening tensions around the questions of will the U.S. deliver the enabling legislation that will allow AUKUS to go forward because the Aussies have bet the farm on this one. And from the U.S. side, there are some questions, too, about whether the Australians are moving quickly enough and whether or not they're adequately resourcing this in a way that will come online sooner rather than later. So what's your take on all that? I mean, you feel attention from the Australians. You feel a little bit of concern from the United States. What, what's your take? First of all, I think friction is not necessarily a bad thing. If we're asking each other to do more, if we're pushing each other, this is an extraordinarily close alliance where the trust levels are really high. But if you just talk about the trust levels and you don't talk about where we need to push each other, then it doesn't actually progress as fast as it should. So I don't think there is a problem, although it might feel uncomfortable at times, point one. The second point is, look, we have some big questions this is brought to the floor. I mean, the main stopping point, or rather the two main stopping points on the U.S. side are whether or not we have enough capacity to sell nuclear-powered submarines to the Australians, considering that the U.S. submarine industrial base, the U.S. shipbuilding base, is not where it needs to be. And so there have been questions raised in Congress about, wait a second, we love the Australians, we like AUKUS and what it will deliver, but where is the plan for expanded production level? 
I think this is actually going to be helpful in that. And we saw the administration responding to some of that pressure in some helpful ways. The supplemental that the Biden administration put forward to Congress, the emergency supplemental, $104 billion request, they put in a $3.4 billion expanded supplemental for the defense industrial base, particularly around submarines, both maintenance and procurement. That is more than the number they had put in originally. Yeah, it's not chump change. It's not chump change, and it's more than we had started. The Australians are eventually going to put $3 billion into this. This is getting us all to a place, I think, where we need to be, where we are putting more resources in the problem to expand the resources and the production lines that we have underway. When we talk about international policy, how aligned are the U.S. and Australia? Is there any daylight on issues like China? We are extraordinarily aligned in how we see the evolving challenges in the region. We are two sovereign countries who don't always view things exactly the same way. Uh, That's not a surprise in saying that whatsoever. One of the stressors had been for a while, and stressors I think overstates it a bit, is, for instance, Australia is a commercial trading nation, really tied into not only the WTO structure, but free trade around the world. That is not where the United States is politically right now. One of the challenges has been how to navigate that. A second area, I think, where we are more aligned now than where we were is across the Pacific Island region. This is an area that always is front of mind for Australians, but occasionally is forgotten about by American strategists. As things have gotten quite hot in that region with the Solomon Islands and elsewhere, this is an area of increasing convergence between the two of us on this. But again, one of the things that bears mentioning all the time is that the United States priority theater is the Indo-Pacific, but it has global equities. So too does Australia, but they're of a different kind. And so occasionally that can kind of rub up against where we are. So one of the concerns I heard from a lot of Australian friends is, got it, but Ukraine, what's happening in the Gaza Strip and with Israel, what's happening with your speaker, can you actually focus on the Indo-Pacific? And the answer is, of course, yes, or yes and, because there are a lot of other things that the United States needs to focus on as well. Australia, as you've pointed out many times, wants to be a global leader in policy themselves. So what do they think about issues involving Israel and Gaza? And we heard at the White House, both in the statements from the prime minister and then the press call that they did afterwards, we heard a condemnation of Hamas's actions. And we also heard a call for cooler heads to prevail. And even some talks around a ceasefire would be in the interests of everyone. That's mostly the same, but not completely the same as the United States. One of the things that I think was really interesting and important is this is a two-way relationship. So there's give and take on it. So yes, Australia is a global player whose voice carries weight. When Australia comes to the United States, inevitably it's going to have a conversation not just about China, not just about Solomon Islands, not just about nuclear-powered submarines, but also about Ukraine and Israel and the South China Sea, where the Chinese are busy harassing the Philippine Navy and Coast Guard as well. One of the things that that prompted, I think, is calls by the Albanese government to put new funding into Ukraine just this last week, more aid towards Israel and more concern towards what's happening in the Philippines. Our policies are not perfectly aligned on all three of these. We have different footprints, different equities. But the most important thing that comes out of this, to my mind, is the rules-based order to which we both affirm and which we both want to support is important to uphold rhetorically. But there's a harder backstop of action that actually needs to be taken to support that. And we begin to see actions that are more action than they are talk. Charlie, were there any disagreements during this visit that are worth talking about, worth looking to the future that need to be mended? 
No, at least not publicly, I would say. But the measure of this is not just what happens publicly. And even privately, I would say probably not. But there are concerns, as we've discussed, that the United States, and I say the United States, not the United States government, because a lot of the action, be it on AUKUS, be it on the designation of Australia as a domestic supplier, is on the hill at this point. So there was clear frustration on the Australian part that we haven't progressed things already. But we also haven't passed the NDAA, the National Defense Authorization Act. We also didn't have a Speaker of the House. So yes, there's, I think, frustration and churn about the U.S. system, some of the unpredictability of it, some of the divides within it, and frustration that they couldn't get to where they were, I think, sooner. But there is progress, I would say, too. Traditionally, the U.S. didn't have disruptions in the political system, but now it's sort of becoming a little bit normal for us, if not a lot normal for us. What do they think of these disruptions? The blood sport of U.S. politics isn't fun for them to watch. And for not only Australia, but for a lot of allies and partners around the region, this is something that they have to navigate. They have to be able to talk to as many sides as possible. But both what things looked like, the prospect of return to the Trump presidency and what that might mean for alliance equities is something that I think they watch with a lot of consternation, hand-wringing and sometimes trepidation, too. And when you talk to them, are they asking you things like, you know, why is the United States so disjointed, if not dysfunctional? Sometimes. I mean, I think because this is not something that's happened overnight in us, it's something that they maybe are disappointed in, but have now come to expect at this point. So the question becomes, how do they correctly navigate this as best as they can to pursue their own interests? And Charlie, you're talking to senior officials in the United States government all the time on this. What are we seeing in terms of Australia as a key partner, what do we want more from them that we're not currently getting? And then finally, I want to ask you, what was the discussion about long-term goals in countering China? So those are three really big questions, but it's funny, you know, your last question, Andrew, you said our political churn, what do they think of this? It's funny because just a couple of years ago, we might've been having this conversation in reverse uh, because the Australians went through a lot of prime ministers and rather quickly. That has slowed down the pace of turnover at their top. The big story, I think, for most Americans who watch this relationship, who have a lot of equities in it, is the fact that we had a change in government in Australia in May of 2022. And it, was a bit, and it was a big change. It was a big change. Labor back in power for the first time in a decade. And so, therefore, the big muscle movements on the alliance, particularly those areas around defense, you know, question mark, would the labor government continue this? And the answer is, more or less continuity with some differences in emphasis. There is in Australia a real premium placed on bipartisan national security. That's something the Australians like to pride themselves on. It's not completely true, of course, and it's less true around election time. But we have seen on the big things, on kind of offsetting Chinese economic coercion, which was meted out to the Australians, on AUKUS, on quad activities, there's a lot of continuity, I think, on this. When the Albanese government was not the government, I guess when they were campaigning, they had a lot of critiques about the coalition government, their predecessors. And they really centered particularly around two things, China and defense. Of course, those two are related. The critique on China was not that they disagreed with the substance of the policy, but the way in which the Morrison government prosecuted was not to Australia's interest. Too loud, too out in front, just do these things quieter. 
and reset the relationship as much as you can. Stabilize it is the terminology that they're using because their commercial equities, their trading equities are so large, much larger than ours are as a percentage of our trade with China. They've done that. They've accomplished that. There's a reason why they've been playing footsie in a way to progress the relationship while, as they say, not backing down on all the big security commitments. So that's a big area, I think. The question that surrounds that is how far they will go as they get things back on track with the Chinese. I think one of the big questions, probably behind closed doors that was discussed is, when the United States decided that it didn't want to pursue TPP, then CPTPP, Australia and Japan took the lead and pushed it forward. Now that it's a thing and we're still not a part of it. Yeah, it's a thing without us. It's a thing without us, but with Britain and now with an application from both Taiwan and China. And so I think there are some questions about what role Australia will play in this. Is this an organization that they are going to block China from entering? Is this an organization that they are going to help China enter? Is this a conversation where they're going to be helpfully non-helpful around China's ascension to it? Yeah, doesn't it defeat the purpose if they bring China in? Well, it certainly seems to contravene all the standards that they set within a high standards trading agreement. But there's enormous pressure on them from Beijing. And so I think there are some questions around that. I don't know the answer, but I think there are a lot of questions and something the United States will be looking quite hard at for them. Second area in China policy, I say, where there are not differences in outlook, but differences in approaches on Taiwan, without a doubt, that the United States has a very forward-leaning approach about what we are doing with Taiwan. And when I say forward-leaning, I mean U.S. policy has gone left, it's gone right, it's gone over the top because there's been real churn over the last year or two that we are on our back foot and not moving as quickly as we can. Some of these things manifestly counterproductive, others way overdue. So there is real movement in U.S.-Taiwan policy and the evolution of that. The movement in Australia is much quieter, perhaps quieter to non-existent. And that's not entirely fair. Let me note that there is policy churn behind closed doors, but nary a word said in public for Taiwan. And I think that's not a large one, but a bit of a tension between the two countries on that. I gave you two. I also said defense policy was a difference. The critique that this government in Australia had of its predecessors was lots of promises and not a lot of delivery. For a long time, the Australians had talked about a lot of defense procurement that they needed. Their region was getting tougher, but they hadn't actually procured things. So this new government has really set itself up to accelerate and speed up its own acquisition. That starts with AUKUS, but it doesn't stop at AUKUS too. Again, I don't think it's a tension. I think it's something that the U.S. is keenly watching and probably not even as keenly as the Australians about how quickly they can bring online some of these deterrent capabilities and how quickly U.S. force posture might be able to shift within Australia and expand. Okay. So Prime Minister Albanese is going to Beijing. We'll be watching that closely. What do you expect to come out of that? Not much. I mean, there's some things around the margins. They've actually already announced most of what's going to happen there. That is, the Chinese have started kind of pulling off their non-tariffs tariffs that they've put on Australia for the last number of years. There's some further movement that it might go around Australian wine, for instance. But the trade relaxation is, I think, the big area of movement. The Chinese released political prisoners that they had held, Australians, on that, and they have the meeting. I think the point here is begin to re-engage the process of government-to-government -government ties. Because at the senior level, you haven't had prime minister meeting with his Chinese counterpart 
since 2016. The resumption of ministerial ties only started in this past year. So to begin to kickstart the process of how governments are supposed to talk to each other when they're happy and when they're not so happy. Charlie, a lot to think about. Really appreciate your time and your expertise. Well, thanks so much for having me on. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 